Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to The Media Beat with Maureen and Claire, episode 22. And we have a special guest. As promised last time, we can now reveal the person to take us through every aspect of sports broadcasting is, uh, well, a perfect example of an expert in this area. Uh, and it's great to welcome Mr. Jeff Nathanson, uh, who is Managing Director at Whistle, the digital entertainment media company for Gen Z. He has had a real specialization in sport and helped to launch the partnership program on YouTube between uh, YouTube and the BBC, Channel 4, ITV, Fremantle and Endemol. He has 20 years international experience of running media properties extending from television networks to digital offerings on social platforms. He's changing the world of the way we consume sport. It is a great pleasure to welcome Jeff to the podcast. Hello, Jeff. Yeah, I don't know if I'm quite, I'm trying to change the world. I don't know if I've quite gotten there yet. It's a bit too soon. Making slight attempts to improve the fan experience. How about that? Now, that, that sounds amazing. I think you're probably selling yourself short. Uh, my ambition in my life is to leave the world pretty much the same way that I found it when I was born. So even that is more ambitious than me. But Jeff, you're, you're probably being too modest. Um, Maureen and Claire are here, of course. Maureen, as you know, leads the global practice in media at Arthur D. Little, the world's oldest management consultancy, as we are prone to say, and her friend and associate of many, many decades, too many to mention since childhood, probably, Claire Tavernier, media commentator and holder of many senior positions in many media companies over her career. And Claire, I know you are raring to get going and ask Jeff um, some questions. I'm going to be fascinated to hear the conversation. So, um, Claire, uh, over, over to you. Well, uh, it's great to welcome you, Jeff. Uh, you and I also have uh, many decades of as associations which have been very successful uh, and I know that at Whistle you've been working really hard on what you've just talked about fan engagement and I, I wanted to maybe start today by asking you how do you build an audience today in sports where where do you where do you go do you can I know there have been some new leagues setting up and it's been interesting to look at their efforts in there how do you think they're doing well, I, I think it's interesting because we see both a lot of innovation as far as sport is concerned nowadays. We're seeing a proliferation of new sports, but then they don't necessarily all cut through in the same way that the traditional powerhouses, particularly football, have done. But we've seen sports like Formula E, Extreme E. We've seen World Chase Tag. We've seen the likes of Paddle become a much, much bigger sport. And each one of them are trying to make a play to be in the bigger space of uh, bigger space amongst some of the larger uh, traditional sporting um, propositions, um, what I always find is is the challenge I always find is is the majority of them tend to follow the traditional model of getting a major distribution deal in place with a sports broadcast or a sports property, and then from there they move on to their sponsorships and they can say I can why don't you sponsor me I have this amazing distribution. And then finally, they get around to saying, oh, wait, now that I have a concept, a distribution and sponsors, I better find an audience. And where am I going to find an audience? And to me, the challenge that is that we're looking at it the wrong way. The reason we look at the, that way is because we get paid from the broadcasters. We get paid by the sponsors, but then we don't get paid by just creating fans right away. And so what I think is really difficult for a lot of, of, of the traditional sports executives is they kind of have to invert the pyramid. They have to build audience and excitement and awareness first and foremost. And then from there, the other pieces will fall in place. However, building that audience doesn't immediately involve checks coming onto your, into your bank account. And so this is really the conundrum that sports finds, especially when we see new sports and innovation. If I'm the NFL or the Premier League, I'm doing pretty well right now on many different fronts. And so they don't face the same issues. But if I'm a small, if I got a great idea, a great brand new sport, then I am, I am very much in a different place where I have to get fans first. And there's a lot more people fighting for the attention of individuals and consuming their time than in the past when we had smaller, a smaller number of uh, channels, right? So that's the thing is, is first thinking about how do you grow your fan base? And of course, what follows on from that is social media. That's the way that you build fans from day one 
And a lot of the new sports brands that are being developed out there are not thinking social first. And therefore, they are not building audiences and they get disappointed television ratings and they get frustrated sponsors. So it just does not help them out unless they think for audience first. And it's been interesting to look at, for instance, the Kings League, which I think is a new football league in Spain and how they've approached this because they, they've, they've done this, right? They went fan first. This, yeah. And it's, you know, it's really interesting where you see innovation coming from uh, these days. And so uh, PK, famous, famous footballer, came up with a Kings League concept. And he was married the, to Shakira. Well, no longer. No longer. No I longer. said it was. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, a little yeah. bit of um, so, celebrity, yeah. <laughs> celebrity power couple. But, you know, well-known footballer, they took football and they put it in a blender. And they took a, they had a bunch of exciting concepts like player X. At one point in time, a current La Liga player could go on the pitch for either team. They created all these interactive fan ba- fan concepts. But what was really exciting about this was they streamed it live on TikTok, Twitch, YouTube, and they did social first. And it got a massive, massive following and excitement. And they're talking about season two or doing a a summer league. They're talking about having a women's specific league. They, and the thing is, is they really got a lot of excitement around the sport. And the sports traditionalists were all like, oh, this is not football. What are they doing letting what are they doing letting fans make decisions? Or what are they doing distributing on Twitch? It should be on traditional. And it has done amazingly well in terms of just fan excitement. And and it's just a great to see this level of innovation and fan excitement around a new league as opposed to it just being tied to a traditional football league. And what I do is I like to contrast that with what we're seeing with the XFL in the United States. So we have the Kings League, which is this new football property out of Spain. We have XFL that's existed on and off a couple of different times, equally has a major celebrity owning it, The Rock, uh, with a massive social following. And they're looking and they're saying, we're through. We're starting through the season, we're seeing a drop-off of our television ratings from week to week. We're seeing a lower viewership. And I would think that an organization run by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who has a massive, massive social following, would be thinking social first. That my, that my, that my uh, Instagram and TikTok feed would be filled with XFL videos, but it's not. And that's because they did the same thing they did. Television first sponsorships, and maybe, just maybe a little bit of social on uh, at the end. And I look at the contrast of these two different leagues, and everyone's very excited about the Kings League, and the XFL is already in, will they last, into, will they enter into their next season or not? And I just think it's like one thought, audience first, fans first, how we're going to create excitement first, and the other thought, how we're going to monetize immediately from day one. And that's kind of put them in a difficult position because they're not monetizing effectively because of the falling ratings. Just keep in mind, the funny thing is the Kings League had its final in Camp New this past week. And 92,000 people paid to show up for the final of this league. And it was it was amazing. Anyways. Going back to... Um... Again, how do you, how you build an audience, Jeff, and, and 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 the fan base, and clearly, you know, fan first is 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 great, or social is 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 great first. Is this still regional at this stage, or or are we seeing, you know, cro- this cross boundaries, cross territories, uh, as the legacy um, broadcast led rights uh, is is much more international? Where, where do you see the distinction here, and and is it fair to say it is still more regional? at this stage? Well, the challenge the challenge you face is that the platforms, the social platforms, want things to be global, whereas the sports rights holders want things to be local, market-by-market market basis, because they can extract more revenue because they have more people to negotiate with. And the platforms want global. The Kings League stuff is interesting because it was done in Spanish. It was Spanish influencers and Spanish footballers, but it permeated so much more of the football culture and space in a rate. And, you know, as someone who doesn't speak Spanish, but followed Kings league on TikTok, I was getting fed a lot of live content from them and I could enjoy the fo- the football very much in that way. And sport is one of those unique properties where, you know, the Americans are watching Premier league football. You know, we watch sport from outside of our specific 
core regions where we're at increasingly as we get more and more access to this. People see quality and they want to find quality and they're not restricted by the language so much. So sport in general is very much about, you know, finding your audience that might extend well beyond your borders per se, right? And it can extend well beyond your borders. So it's the broadcasters that want to keep it and the, and the rights owner that want to keep it territory by territory because they have more control of the situation. And equally, to be honest, they have more ability to monetize it on a local basis. But the demands of the platforms now and fans are they want to have whatever content they can get whenever they can get it. And it's interesting that there hasn't been a platform because in, in the TV world, in the content world, you would say this was this was the model. People would make something and then they would sell it to as many countries as possible. And then Netflix came on and now you sell it once to Netflix and it goes to over 130 countries. But there hasn't been a global broadcast platform for sports. Well, I mean, we at, we at DAZN would, of course, argue differently as we've tried to build a global platform from day one that would be, in, just you know, to clarify, Whistle is part of DAZN. Um, and we've created a global platform. It's really been a challenge where some sports where we can very much get the rights internationally in the boxing space, we can operate internationally, whereas in terms of some of the football and NFL and basketball and all these other types of sports, they're much more still licensed on a local basis. So there is that tension. I mean, we do see the tension that the Netflix we see here in the UK is different than Netflix in the United States. And I'm trying to figure out where I can find stuff that my friends in the US are talking about and which platform it will be on. So there's still a diff. We're getting a different Netflix. But the back end is very much consistent in terms of the user experience, et cetera. So sport is just, you know, sport is sport is interesting in that for broadcasters, it's still absolutely essential. It's the one opportunity you have to create a scaled live audience one place, one time, the Super Bowl. Why is the Super Bowl, the ad so expensive on the Super Bowl? Because you know you're going to get an enormous audience in a specific period of time. And so it's of enormous value to advertisers. Whereas with Netflix, you're never quite sure who's watching what, when, unless you have a big tentpole release of that day. So sports still is that place. And that's why the broadcasters are fighting tooth and nail for sports rights that really deliver these audiences. They really love the fact that they do this. Whereas in the past, you know, the, uh, the traditional broadcasters have conceded a lot of the space of drama or film to the Netflix and to the to streamers. And Jeff, could we go back to the monetization um, aspect of, of this conversation? That is, you know, which models are working now? Pay-per-view, advertising funders, subscriptions? I mean, we can see generally that there's been a move overall in the industry from, you know, SVOD to AVOD in the more film and TV world. How, how are we thinking about this type of, business model, monetization program for sports across both. There, there, there is a challenge in the sports space on monetization for this, right? Because the broadcasters, we, when we take a look at it from the UK example, um, Sky spends a lot of money to have the Premier League on Sky. And they, the, what they pay for that is disproportionate potentially to the actual viewership on Sky Sports. Because me, as a consumer, I have to watch the Premier League. I need to see the Premier League. I need that. And that gives Sky the opportunity. I have to have my Skybox, though I use now TV now. They have the opportunity to sell me Sky Films, sell me other stuff, sell me broadband, sell me my mobile phone, sell me my landline. You know, And so they have the opportunity to sell. And so with that Sky Sports, they have all the information about me and the ability to sell something. So... Sports provides a disproportionate value to the actual audience, to the overall sky, um, the sky uh, ecosphere, right? Now, what happens is when you start saying that we're just looking at sports as a standalone proposition, the value of the audience is different. So that means we have to generate new sources of revenue. Subscription is incredibly important for premium sport and will remain as well as pay-per-view as well. And that's really, really important. And then, but the fact is, it's not enough to compensate for these other areas that the traditional broad, that broadcasters, or in the case of Sky, a satellite operator would garner the revenue. You know, and we, we could show, show comparable examples in the United States where you had like you know carriage fees on cable, 
that would generate a lot of revenue combined with audience, combined with premium fees, et cetera. Um, so that means it makes it much more difficult for sports. Now we have to make money from many different locations. Now we need to make money, much more money from sponsorship. And that means generating more value on behalf of sponsors. We have to be direct to consumer media propositions where we're selling advertising units. We need to move into e-commerce. So we're selling merchandise and much more than just selling simple merchandise, selling much more, um, uh, things tied to the realm of sport that might be outside of just a, a hoodie or a mug. We, what we're seeing also is the importance of integration with betting going forward. So what happens is in the past, if I was running a league, I would sell my TV rights and then I'd sell my sponsorships. And then I'd have a couple of years off until the next round of negotiations took place and life was good. And it was simple and it was very basic and I could, and you know, it was tough. I mean, people worked hard, but in reality, once you did those deals, your job was done. Now we have to find new revenue sources and we have to scratch revenue from every location we can find it. And that means a much more challenging environment for sports executives. And one where we're increasingly uncomfortable because again, you're asking us to do things that we haven't done before, have a direct to consumer relationship, run an e-commerce platform, all these things are really hard to do on their own. And then they're even more difficult when you have to have a whole series of things you're doing differently that you're not comfortable doing. And that's interesting. Are there any any sports where the old model still works? I mean, the NF, the, is it the NFL, they just did this massive, big, you know, multi-year deal. Is that is that fine now? Can they go to bed for five years until the next one comes well, along? I don't think anyone can sleep right now because there's so much competition in this space. But the NFL is does incredibly well in the united states and is doing increasingly well internationally we are seeing formula one get traction just think about how big formula one was before it became a big sport in the united states and so you know they're doing incredibly well the premier league i'm i'm looking forward to the day which should happen uh maybe if not in the next rights the rights after that where the u.s will the U.S. will be a bigger revenue source in terms of television revenue for the Premier League than the U.K. And, and that will that, be very. You see that coming. The, the Premier League is is that big in the U.S. now. The way that it's growing, and the way that it owns Saturday and Sunday mornings in the U.S., and the way that it's permeating youth culture there, it is on a roll along with F1. The best that we're also, we're all looking forward to F1 in Las Vegas this year. And you know, again, it it, it so. Those so if you're at the absolute top tier where where you know a sports broadcaster cannot have the NFL in the United States, you know, because they lose so much audience, then that's a great place to be. My concern is always those sports properties underneath the absolute top tier where there's enormous demand for them as both domestic and international. And so when I think about that, those are the guys that have to really find new sources of revenue, really have new approaches towards licensing content, licensing their brand, and working with all kinds of different types of organizations. You know, um, that's really where you have to see innovation and collaboration in the sports space. Uh, what, what You've talked about the smaller sports, sports struggling uh, beyond the sort of top, top tier. What about the smaller uh, sports broadcasters? I mean, you've got your ESPNs and your Sky Sports, but what if you're Eurosport? What if you're, you know, what, what, what's the future for these guys? I think Eurosport is interesting just because it's now part of Discovery, which is now being rebranded. Um, they're being rebranded. Um, BT Sport is being rebranded. Eurosport is remaining relatively the same. Uh, I think TSN is the brand they're going with on this. And so... Their approach with the discovery is to aggregate as much sports as they can get and as much entertainment as they get and as much content that goes through news and information in that discovery plus bundle. And the assumption is, is that that will be a must purchase. And within that, they will distribute the money accordingly. Um, and so that's there. We've seen the consolidation in that kind of space where we've seen that consolidation in the NBC sports, sky sports, um, you know, consolidation as well. So these people will have more bidding are on the right side, larger audiences, et cetera. And so we see that kind of consolidation. The challenge I see with that model is the fact that sports fans are not sports fans in general. 
they are sports specific fans. Oliver has pointed out that he's a big rugby fan and rugby fans can sometimes be snobs and they view football as being beneath them. Whereas rugby is uh, much more of a gentleman's game or something like that. So this whole concept of, of, of um, the aggregation of sports model works against what we're seeing on social media, which is building communities and communities are tied together on key passion points. And it can be a specific sport, a specific league, a specific club, player, or personality, but it's not the concept of the general sports fan. That is a bit of a thing that only existed in a space where scarcity was possible. And so now we're trying to have to identify communities. So what I find interesting is what I find interesting is within this, this, this gigantic discovery plus is a small channel called global cycling network. And that was something that they purchased um, uh, by, from Simon Weir a couple of years ago. It was a YouTube Simon channel, Weir. wasn't it, originally? It started off as a YouTube yeah. channel. And it was based on a very simple concept that no one bought into at the time, except for my boss, Steve Nuttall, thought it was a great idea, and he has been proven right. And that is that basically there is an audience for middle-aged men in Lycra, mammals, right? They want to talk about bikes. They want to buy bikes. They want to watch videos about bikes. And that's what they do. And they built this very, very passionate and very um, wealthy community around cycling. And then from there, it's like they ride on the weekends and there's a thin line between riding your bike and then also thinking about yourself as a potential competitor. And so there's this whole community that's incredibly passionate around cycling. And in the early days and even later on, they could not find enough inventory. They were selling all of their inventory, all their sponsorship packages. And they're bringing advertisers onto video that had never been brought before. However, this is a very strong community, but it doesn't provide the scale that a discovery would like to see. So these are the constrictions that we see is one is a, the likes of a discovery NBC sports. They want to have that aggregation. They want to have that really big um, scale. Whereas the way that people are operating are much more on a community level where they really love their particular sports. They want to interact with the athletes. They want to interact with the other fans. And that is the challenge in the, that we feel in, the, in terms of the tension of where the business model, where the business wants the business model to be size and scale, whereas what the fans want, which is much more localized community and localized, not meaning localized in one specific territory, but one key passion point. What was your view on the idea of um, Paramount coming out then? So, so, so if we've got this sort of almost what polarization of uh, large scale and then we've got these kind of uh, niche um, hobbyist community-led um, sports activities you know why do we see someone like Paramount CBS Sports then debuting a new uh, community for soccer fans um, setting up where, where, where do they fit where do they fit in the grand I'm not, things? I, I would like to say I know where they fit into this but I don't understand it so much. I mean, they have some rights, they have some content, but it, it, it's, you know, it's like, it feels, you know, you can't half-ass this kind of thing, right? Forgive my language. And it just seems like you have to really, you know, lay claim to what is really your important virtues as a community and really own it and really invest in it. You've seen it with the zone with boxing, where they've really taken a very difficult sport and tried to consolidate as much of the activity as possible and create new parts of the sport with the X series, which is the influencers beating each other up. And they've really invested in this. It's one thing to say you're going to do something, and it's another thing to really, really execute on it. And that's really hard. Building communities is hard. Building fan bases and passions is really, really hard. It's easier just to buy stuff and, and throw it all together in an app and say, go out there, you'll find something that you want to see there. And the difference though is with communities is you have a much better way of monetizing because you're talking the same language. When you're selling them stuff, you're much more convincing about this. And so the challenge you face with the CBS Paramount is, is will it resonate as authentically as more core-based communities tied to this specific sport? of that specific sport of soccer in the US. I feel like you can't half as this is going to be the, the quote of the of the quote of the podcast. So I'm gonna put that on the cover. The model we have at Whistle is we've tried to build social communities around key sports has been 
if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. And we use that every time we hit, every time we hit a wall or a challenge, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. The road ahead for sport is very challenging and people have to be prepared for that. Staying with um, everybody doing it, uh, it would be uh, simple to do. Um, the exploration of uh, like tokenization and uh, uh, NFTs, uh, you know, really sort of uh, embedding some form of loyalty program with uh, the fan base. What did you see over the course of the last year or two uh, working uh, for uh, fans and uh, how did you, you know, retain them, lock them in, prevent churn? Uh, did tokenization or NFTs work for anybody? I mean, NFTs worked well for those hyping them up in the first phase. Like any bit of innovation in this space, and having lived through the first dot bomb phase of you know 2000, and you know seeing all this, you see the same thing. The technology and innovation comes out, everyone buys into it. No one knows what the real intrinsic value is of it. Prices go up, everyone gets excited. People do experimentation and then it fails horrifically and everyone's saying, well, we're never doing that again. But then it comes back when you start seeing the real value of it. I did not see, and I might've missed something, much value in what was being generated in the first phase of the NFTs, uh, the NFT uh, process. It was cute. It was funny. It was like, you know, one of those, you could tell it was a bubble market based on what people were actually buying. But what you ultimately have is, the ability going forward is, is not the NFT in and of itself, the visual item or the digital art or whatever it is. It's the functionality that we can embed within the NFT itself. And this goes to the concept of when you think about stuff is we talk about building communities and we talk about monetizing communities. And within DAZN, I say we're not selling subscriptions. We need to get to the point where we're selling membership. And digital assets allow us to create membership and early adopters, early purchasers can get rights within that and can be investors in that club of which the community we're trying to build early on. And that can generate real value, but it has to move away from it's an immediate investment with a good ROI to being, it's actually something that you want to own and hold on to and pass on to your kids because it has real value and it can unlock everything from you know, it can unlock everything from uh, access to content to discounts to first option on tickets to act, you know, uh, on location activities and real world ap applications. If it's just something that I'm going to put behind me when you're visiting me in the metaverse, artwork behind me, then I don't see the value. At least I don't see it within the sports realm. And so I'm waiting for the second wave of innovation to come. Once all the people who were trying to make a quick buck have left the marketplace and people sit there and say, now, what do we do with this functionality of a tradable, monetizable asset that is digital? And what are we going to attach to it that has real value? And that's where I think the next phase comes on this. And the rest of the stuff has just been fluff. And so I try and avoid that first wave of fluff whenever we see it. Sounds very wise. Uh, and moving, well, yeah, I'm still waiting. I'm a late adopter. I'm a late adopter. If if I'm using that technology, yeah. then you know that it's going to stick around for a while because it's it's reached a point where I see the functionality on it. This is this is my personal view: is that mass media has to be a late adopter because we're dealing with very large audiences, and that's true of TV and it's true of sports. You know, at the moment we can't be at the leading edge of anything because it's too small. That's not what this is about. This is about large groups of people that need to that have very you know even in a, the fan base of a team or a football team you're going to get young people older people women men different age groups different backgrounds etc and it needs to work for all of them and it doesn't work if it doesn't work for all of them then it shouldn't happen and we keep on trying to make sport the cost structure of producing content around sport remains expensive mm -hmm. right even this thing like the king's league which was a startup you still need to have a large number of high quality athletes. You still need to have a multi-cam arena. You need to be able to try and get fans in there. You need to have talent. You need to have studios, galleries. You need to get the stream out of there. You're dealing with live, so you can't fix things in post. You have to, it has to be good the first time. And so there is a cost structure within sport, which means that you do need to have an awareness of, 
of of where your money's going to come because it can't be can't be one person in a camera and, a, and and editing on their laptop. You need something much more structured and sophisticated for that. I think there's uh, the Chilex in the US. Is it um, Alexandra, the CEO, um, is leading the charge here, where he's taking uh, it one step further by 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 giving people the opportunity to have that particular ball that that on the soccer field, you know, that was shot and got that goal, and that ball is then taken off and then signed and then given to that fan who who basically watched that at that moment. I mean, that that, that is true um, loyalty-driven, you know, community uh, uh, prize-giving. I mean, that that's an amazing piece of investment, you know, I think. Um, I, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not familiar with this, but it does sound interesting. Yeah, Chilex. Um, I heard it on, a, on another podcast, actually, on a competing podcast by uh, oh. Rail uh, Powell, um, Alexandra Dreyfus. He's the CEO uh, and founder of Chilix. Yeah, I will have to look that up. Sounds it sounds very interesting. It does. It does indeed. Moving on to a slightly different topic, what's going on with the streamers? At some point, everybody was you know Amazon was going to become the place for live sports, and indeed they bought some. They spent a lot of money on on live sports rights. Netflix seems to have a slightly different perspective on it. I mean, what what are you seeing coming from those those global streaming platforms? And we've seen Apple's deal with MLS, which is really interesting. Um, you know, um, it's it's tough to read. Everyone's always been waiting for the the big platforms. At least a while ago, it was you know when is Apple, Google, and Facebook going to get in the live rights area? Of those, Apple's the only one that seems to be fully committed to it. Though there's something, and and Facebook's definitely not involved in live rights. And then, so then it became the streamers, you know, when are they going to start doing it? And they're, and they're, and they're making some purchases in this space. My viewpoint and the challenge I face with this, with, with them is that their lack of full on commitment towards playing in the big space here and really spending the money means that one, they don't design a platform that supports live sport, discovering content right away and being able to watch it live be notified of where it is, is really essential. And the app has to help you do that. And then also your marketing strategy has to do that as well as your social handles. And the fact is, is the platforms have so much else going on there, the streamers or even the Amazon folks. They have so much else going on there. It's easier to promote promote VOD than it is live. It's easier to do that because you can spread over a period of time where it's like you have to tune in at a specific time to watch that sport and either if you or you miss it. And so building a platform that can do both super serve multiple types of VOD content, but also live is a bit challenging to give you an example. It's like this past weekend we had England versus Ukraine and I couldn't figure out where it was. And my first thing to do is just to look at the sports app. So at least I knew I would have found it quickly there. And then I went to BBC and ITV, which is hard to find live content on there, but I looked there and they didn't have it. Finally, I found it on channel four for some reason. And so why that would be a good home for live sports, I know that there are economic reasons or we want to reach large audiences through public service broadcasters, et cetera. But in terms of just creating a destination where people know the live sport is where it's at and the talk about sport is, is different than what the streamers are doing and what they're building. So whether they go in full on, they have the money to do it, they don't, I don't, the question is whether they have the wherewithal, whereas the likes of a, a Sky, a DAZN, is all in in the sports space. They really need and want to succeed in this space, and they're going to build an app that does it, and they're going to go after the rights in a way that they really want to do it. And there's that passion and that commitment, which is not necessarily there on the platforms. I can speak from my experience at Google. That was really interesting to see the level of indifference the executives had to live sports. It was not their thing. And this is the founders. This is back, you know, in the era of Larry and Sergey. They were not that keen sports fans. And so it was very difficult to get them excited about the proposition of spending a lot of money on live sport. Now, we've just seen that YouTube's done a big deal for uh, for, for for the game, uh, not the Game Pass, but for the, um, the, the Red Zone. And they'll be excited to see what they do with it. But it's taken them about 15 years to get there. And we'll see whether they, from there, they build up to a further commitment towards live sports. And obviously Netflix is doing it slightly differently. They've gone into 
scripted, well, not scripted, but documentaries. The, 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 they, they went with Formula One and they, they've sort of built on their strength, which is to gather audiences around content, but not necessarily live. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how many meetings I walk into and people say, what we really want is our drive to survive. And it's like, everyone's like, we need our drive to survive. What's our drive to survive? And then, and every sports property, every league federation is saying, how do we get, how do we talk to Netflix about, you know, our, our version of drive to survive? Because first of all, first of all, it's just great content. I mean, taking a step back as even if you don't, if you hate sports, the personalities, the storylines, the story arcs, the, the visuals are just amazing and drive to survive, you know, and you just love it. And then you sit there and say, well, this is absolutely great. It makes it accessible to people who would never be motorsports fans ever. And this is, this is, this is, um, it's just an amazing, an amazing accomplishment. Oliver's talking about darts. Don't get me started on darts. It's the best live sport. out <laughs> It's the best live sport. This is um, going to move into Crofts territory. That's the next level. Let's take the main sport. <laughs> but Drive to Survive did something that no one thought possible because F1 for the longest period of time says we have to break America. And the way we're going to break America is we're going to have a, a couple of Grand Prix in, in, in the U.S. And there was, there, was, there was an audience there, but it was never that big, right? It was never that big. What it took to really crack America was this amazing Netflix series. And now we see that F1 is, is, is beating NASCAR on its home turf. That Americans, perhaps uh, Americans who, who are very, very isolated over there, are supporting athletes from countries, that, from countries outside of America, their favorite, you know, that they can even locate where Monaco is on a map is a major accomplishment for the Americans, let alone whether they're supporting Charles Leclerc or not. And so the, the model for Netflix with this, with Drive to Survive and the other documentary series that we've seen um, are, are really great for generating interest, fan-based new monetization streams. And this is really a powerful part of the industry going forward and a growth opportunity. Whether it'll be for darts, you know, I mean, darts is great. I mean, I love darts. The live is good enough as is. We'll have to see. I think darts is the, the definition of a very a depth versus breadth kind of sports. <laughs> darts, darts is a growth sport. We're seeing darts, you know, Germany is like, has a, has a great, has a couple of great athletes there. China is beginning to. I mean, athletes is, you know, a word. <laughs> you know, we used to make fun of golfers and then Tiger Woods um, well, came along and showed us that you, and the level of athleticism that we're starting to see in terms of the darts yeah. is, is improving. And it's really, really something when you see, when you see like the concentration levels required to do this, if you want to know what a really hard sport is, go try and throw darts and see, see, see how well you do there. Where do you see it all going? I mean, you know, if you project yourself five years from now, what would the sports look like? If I could predict where sports was going, I, I, I would be much more successful. Oh yeah, and we will definitely bring this back to you in five years until you were completely uh, wrong on everything. But well, still, go for it. It's not so much where sports are going because it's like tied up to where global media is going and stuff like that. I'm committed to the, I'm fully committed to the fact that you have to build passionate communities. And if you can find a way of building passionate communities around the sport, then you will, you will, you will have the ability to find new ways of making money, whether it's through a Netflix series or through live, live licensing or owning your own, own OTT platform or set up your e-commerce store. So for me, the opportunities look interesting in terms of like, think about gymnastics, women's gymnastics in particular. At the end of the Olympics, I know the name of every woman on the U.S. Olympic team, and they are some of the most amazing athletes on the planet. And yet I don't see them for another four years when they come back as commentators for the next Olympics. And yet that doesn't mean gymnastics does not have um, competitions or, and that the only competition that there is, is the Olympics. The fact is, is that the way that the sport is structured and run right now doesn't allow it to capitalize on an audience that's composed of both, both young women and young men who participate in it and people have developed their fan base over years of watching the Olympics. And yet no one can seem to find a way to tell the story throughout the year, both live and through 
video on demand of what's going on with these amazing athletes. And that is where an opportunity lies. In the same way we follow the global cycling network model, we all, we don't all, but a number of us will spend an enormous amount of money. So we go on holiday skiing in the mountains and we will ski and we will think, and, and the same way that they built global cycling network, why the likes of FIS, the ski federation has not been able to build something of significance that ties together both our own personal passion for going on holiday and skiing in the mountains and more of the initiatives and endeavors around professional skiing is beyond me because the people who ski tend to be wealthy and they think about themselves as athletes and they want to see the similarities between what they do on their holidays and what professionals are doing. So there's that ability to build communities that remains completely untapped. And so what I think the years ahead beyond aggregation of the superpowers will be the people who build these communities around these sports and that involve everything from participation through to competition will find that they have a very interesting space to play in. And that's where I see the excitement is, is really tapping into the fact that we are these tribes of athletes that we may not be recognized for it when we're doing it on the evenings and weekends as opposed to professionals. And that thin line between the participation and enjoyment of professionalism needs to be crossed and, and straddled where in the past, the sports broadcasters would only look at the absolute top tier. Staying with predictions, Jeff, um, we've seen breakthroughs with uh, women's football. Uh, of course, tennis has been around for quite a few decades. What do you see as the next breakthrough for women in sport? I think, well, I mean, women's football has been amazing. I think we already have these sports that just that we love and care about besides tennis. And like I said, women's gymnastics, figure skating, you know, um, equestrian events, which is, you know, one of the few co-educational sports. So, and I think these sports really have, you know, they're not getting, because they're not reflective of the men's sports. So we're always looking for like, you know, the W series did badly in terms of women's motorsports. Um, you know, we've, we've seen a lot with women's rugby, you know, make some progress, et cetera. But I think there's a lot of sports out there that women are already at the absolute top of the game and incredibly enjoyable and watchable sports. I just think it's about the fact that people aren't bundling them together. I think the second biggest participation sport in the United States after uh, is, is cheerleading. And, and, and we all watch that amazing documentary, uh, not that, that documentary series. What was it called? Cheer or something like that. I'm trying to remember the name of it. What was it called? And it was just great. Uh, it was the university cheer squad. And it was just great. And it's like, but yet we are not watching um, the competitions that are taking place on, you know, what would be happening on a regular basis. That remains very much a niche area. And yet we have such a high level of participation and a high level of interest when we see it presented in the right way. So I think that the women's sports are already out there. It's not about being reflective of the men's competitions, but really the sports where they are already the dominant force within it. You know, there is men's gymnastics and men participate in cheering and figure skating. But the women have long been, uh, if not equal, above the men in terms of the interest levels in these sports. Okay, we're going to close down. And I want to close down by asking you a few quick fire questions. Favorite favorite football team? I am a Chelsea supporter for um, for sins in a previous oh, life. Dear. Okay, <laughs> oh, dear. okay, moving on, moving on. Favorite <laughs> thing? It's, it's important to understand that 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 you know I went through an arduous process when I arrived in in London. Um, approximately, what was it? It was about twenty five years ago, 20, nearly thirty years ago, when I started, and I had to go and do research as to what was going to be my club because my and you family Chelsea. And I stick to it to this day because there is no better, there's no better experience than when you get out of the tube at Fulham Broadway on match day and you walk towards Stamford Bridge with the rest of the crowd, meet up with your friends for a pint, you go in a stadium, which is a beautiful stadium, and every seat makes you feel like you're right on top of the pitch, and you watch some of the best football on the planet. Yes. Okay. Chelsea is a great club with great with a great experience. And anyone who goes there and doesn't have a good time, I, th- I have serious doubts about your character. Okay, okay. Favorite baseball team? 
I, <coughs> excuse me, I grew up in Minnesota, so I am a Twins fan through and through. Um, I learned a lot about loss and disappointment through the Twins, and the only time they ever won the World Series was after I had long left Minnesota. Keeping in mind, I highly recommend to anyone hearing this that whenever I'm in a U.S. town, I go and watch the baseball regardless. If there's a game on, triple A, double A, if you ever get a chance, whenever you want to find out and really understand a town, go watch the local sports team. Also, go to Detroit and go to the baseball stadium in Detroit, which is all the way downtown, and it's absolutely amazing, and you see all the skyline. There's no better day out than a day at the baseball. My, my question for you, Jeff, is uh, will sumo wrestling come back? There we, you know, there was a great documentary that came out about sumo wrestling recently called Giants. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not sure about that. I mean... Uh, I mean, they're great personalities and great stories. It's a very interesting sport. But again, I don't see it so much. I, I, I don't see it. I'm going to finish with my final question and then we have to close. What's your favorite sport? I should have started with that. I mean, that's really, I mean it's, it, it's, it's really difficult because, again, I grow up. Um, I mean, it's like asking me which one of my children is my favorite. Yeah. And sometimes I say I hate them all equally. But, you know, I mean, it's so tough to say. I mean, I love, I love football and, and it's something that's just completely grown on me. I never expected in any shape or form. I listen obsessively to Bill Simmons podcast about NBA basketball, even though, you know, even though I can't watch games because they're on too late. And yet the feeling I have when NFL season is over and I realize that there's another, you know, six months until the start of camp or something like that. That's a bit, you know, until training camp. I mean, again, the draft and the combine can hold me together. There's just this empty feeling after the Super Bowl, realizing how long you have to wait for the NFL season. But then on the other hand, there's no better live event than when I go to the darts at Alley Pally during Christmas. I mean, it's just nothing means Christmas more to me than the darts at Alley Pally. So like and I have had sports for all seasons. Listen, I, I know I said that was my final question, but I just remembered something, <laughs> an amazing story that you told me recently that I think we need to fit into this podcast somehow. Can you talk to me about the skating hair challenge thing? The, oh, oh, the the greatest YouTube channel or video is, is, is what's known as the all hair team. So the real number one sport in Minnesota is not the Vikings, or, or the um, or the Gopher basketball, or um, the Twins, or any of that, or the Timberwolves. It is Minnesota State High School High School Ice Hockey Tournament that takes place, and so that is the best sporting event that takes place. And Minnesota is one of the few states that still produces NHL players. And the thing is, is the All Hair Team is one plucky young man decided that he wanted to do a compilation video of the ice skaters skating up to the cameras and throwing their hair back because there's this thing called hockey hair, which regresses back to the day when the mullet was the most strong fashion statement. And he awards what he calls the all hair team, which is the top 10 best hair for high school high ice hockey players every year, sends out baseball caps to all of them. To win that is almost the equivalent of lifting the trophy for the Minnesota State High School Ice Hockey Tournament. So do, do yourself a favor. Look up the all hair team. We'll, we'll put that in the notes. We'll amazing. The notes. Amazing. You know, we can use that for our emojis. We can use that yeah. for our emojis. Yeah, exactly. And once when I had hair, I had a good mullet as well, though I was a terrible ice hockey. Okay, we're going to need a picture of that. But yes, I, you know, we're talking about like your favorite sports, and it's hard to do that, your favorite sports teams. It's just, you know, maybe we don't give enough credit. The reason that sport remains so important is because it's something that we can talk about in a positive light and it's something that we can share across so many different parts of, of society, of friendships, et cetera. And it's like, and, you know, in difficult times, it's like what we'd say is, is the only thing you can talk about when you can't talk about anything else is sport. And that's one of those things that you keep in mind that we, we, when we look at all the money stuff in the business side, we forget the actual emotional and, and, and societal importance of sport. I think one of my favorite quotes was, uh, um, uh, I, I think I, I'm trying to think about who said it during COVID, was during COVID when we were all locked inside and they were saying, should we bring back the Premier League? Should we be watching the Premier League right now when so much other terrible stuff has happened? And one of the quotes, uh, uh, I think 
I think it was Roy Hodgson who said this. I might be wrong. He said, of all the unimportant things, sport is the most important. And with that, we understand the importance of this kind of unifying sense of uh, distraction that we have through sport. And it, it, it generates enormous value. All we're doing in the business is trying to find these ways of bringing people together and celebration, celebrating what humans are capable of accomplishing. And it can really be magical. It still can be magical. Um, even after all these years and all this different sport that we've all watched, everything talking about going up to Ali Pali to see the darts or Stanford bridge to see Chelsea or going, you know, it's TCF stadium to see the twins play. So yes, sport is, sport is the least, the most important of the unimportant things in life. Fantastic. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much. The darts at Ali Pali are absolutely remarkable. You're, you're quite right. Uh, and, uh, I was one of the lucky 200 who was let into, uh, the team that I support, Stadium, uh, after COVID closed. So there's 200 of us oh, really? supporting in a Euro match. Yeah. Um, the team was Tottenham, uh, I have to say. So therefore, that's possibly where our friendship ends. But yeah, Chelsea, fine team. I went, I went up, I went up to my first time. I went up to White Hart Lane. It was just to go watch a match. It was just so awful. The experience of getting off the tube and getting going to the stadium, and it's just like. I think- Choosing a football team based on public transportation isn't isn't a very American thing to do. Let me put it that way. <laughs> it's not public. It's not public transportation. It's the ambiance. It's the ambiance experience. Yeah. Well, it's a hell of a lot worse. When Chelsea come up, uh, when when Chelsea come up the old uh, A10 to come and see us, it's normally a worse experience for us because you normally thrash us. But uh, anyway, <laughs> never mind. Uh, you can't have everything. That's the only imperfection I've managed to see in Jeff's personality. Thank you, thank you very much. That was amazing. I learned loads. So nice to see someone totally passionate about world sport as well. Uh, you, you're completely indiscriminate about the sports you go for. But at, at heart, of course, it's the sport you grow up with that's the one that has the most um, influence on you. Um, I guess I, we just have to say, don't we? Uh, thanks ever so much, Jeff. Thank you for coming. No worries. Thank you for having me. I, 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 I hope that I haven't said anything offensive or that will get me fired. Um, <laughs> so maybe not. Um, but thank you guys for your time. No problem. Well, thank you. See you. Uh, next time Maureen see you Oliver and thank you so much Jeff and uh, see you next time Claire thank you very much goodbye that closes uh, episode 22 and it only remains for me to say thanks again Jeff and come on you Spurs Mm -hmm.